This episode is brought to you by Zohar's Bioluminescent Shampoo and Hair Care Products. You've heard other cosmetological companies claim to give your tresses luster and shine, but do they really? You won't say so after you never again have to turn on the light on your way to the bathroom with Zohar's Bioluminescence Shampoo. Zohar is the leading provider of goo to train and improve your glorious mop with living creatures from caves, the bottom of the ocean, and under-rotted logs. What's more, Zohar's products can save you hundreds of dollars on your electric bill, as you'll never need a lamp to read or do needlework. Excuse me, honey, could you turn your gorgeous mane this way a little while I paint these Warhammer 40k minis? And now when you use the promo code RERED, one word, Zohar's will give you a sample of their Rogaine alternative Lux Life. Turn that receding hairline into a sexy green energy benefit powered by the light of the life-giving sun, as beautiful women ask you to come closer while they look for their keys in their purses. And thank you, Zohar's Bioluminescence Shampoo and Hair Care Products, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf Podcast. This episode is brought to you by the support of generous listeners just like you. You can learn how to be one of them at patreon.com slash rereadingwolf. And thank you, listener patrons, for supporting the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread. A Gene Wolf story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hey, Craig. Hello. So, the aftermath of the three episodes, hours and hours of discussing Morwenna's execution. <laughs> so this is or innocence. An, yeah, exactly. This is another one of those things that I did not expect us to spend that much time on. No, and I like I like imagine. with Shadow. I was like, is we're talking more about Asia than I ever expected to really. And <laughs> now Morwenna's becoming a big thing. So. Yeah, there's probably something in that. So yeah, chapter four, chapter five, and then an alternate take uh, with Mike Farrar. And then Mark Aramini's 50-minute rebuttal episode. <laughs> and people still wanted to talk about it. So most of it, of course, was you know drilling down on the things and the points of views that we'd already discussed. The fires are raging on, the, you know, the Facebook group and the Rereading Wolf subreddit. And nor was it limited to the Rereading Wolf subreddit. It spilled over into the Gene Wolf's subreddit, mm-hmm. which is, uh, you know, frankly, cool. Yep. Really great. Uh, yeah, check it out. Links are on the show notes. And thanks, Mark Aramini and Mike Farrar. However, one post on the Gene Wolf subreddit and an email, they hit on a player in this story that I think has been surprisingly, looking back on it, surprisingly neglected. Mm-hmm. And that player is Triskly. No. <laughs> Close. Haythor. <laughs> Haythor, who is known as a propagator of mayhem, is standing right there beside Eusebia. So buckle up, everyone. The roads are going to get a little rough for the next stretch. <laughs> so Redditor Low Faithlessness 546 on the Gene Wolf subreddit said, What if Haythor poisoned the bouquet? I go back and forth in terms of Morwenna's guilt, but there's a brief acknowledgement in the text that an unknown person 
possibly being involved in her family's deaths. Quote, so it was somebody else or a sickness after all. I just keep thinking about how Haythor pops up in the crowd next to Eusebia after she taunts Marwenna with the flowers and how when the bouquet is examined, the poison was an unidentifiable by the local apothecary. So low faithlessness seems to be implying that Haythor could have been the poisoner of Marwenna's family as well as the poisoner of Eusebia. I don't know. It's probably, I don't think it's probable that Haythor poisoned Chad and Stacky, since I assume the investigation of their deaths occurred while Severian and Haythor were on the other side of the wall. Mm-hmm. I still don't think that it could have been, you know, more than 36 hours ago. However, Haythor, he has the opportunity being right next to Eusebia, after all. And what about means and opportunity? Well, Craig, the significance that I've put it in legal prosecutorial terms, <laughs> it, well, that matters because shortly after we received an email from Frederick Hohenzollern, and the only thing I'm confident about the identity of Frederick Hohenzollern is that his name is not Frederick And I even looked him up because, or looked up that name, and it's kind of cool because there's a Prussian king who has that name. And something about his email address even mentions (laughs) kings in Prussia. So there's a a cool backstory there. Well, maybe it is him. I I take it all back. (laughs) (laughs) But he does tell us he's a former prosecutor, and he employed his professional skills to break down the case against Marwenna. And he poses, as he calls it, quote, a crazy theory. Low Faithlessness had a similar characterization of his own theory. So jump on in, guys. I assure you there's lots of room here in this pool of crazy theories. And there's a liberal peeing policy. So, <laughs> yeah, we're trying to get King Frederick to um, <laughs> to post it somewhere because we don't know if he's on Reddit or Facebook somewhere. But as of us recording this, we haven't heard back from him yet. But if yeah. we do, there will be a link. Yes, there will definitely will. Because it's actually really well done and just just incredibly well organized. Yeah. Like I would I would love to see every wolf puzzle <laughs> laid out in this way. Awesome. I'm trying. I'm trying. <laughs> well, yeah. And uh I can't really do it justice, but I'm going to try and summarize it as best I can. He says, I'm not convinced by Mark, but I am on the fence about what actually happened and wanted to outline my thoughts. I'm a former prosecutor, and so I'm interested in portrayals of justice systems in fiction and how they do or don't accurately reflect the messy realities of crime and punishment. I don't think my background is really that useful in the Commonwealth, but I just wanted to explain where I'm coming from. So this should be interesting. He starts with, what evidence against Moena does Severian know? And no, dreams are not admissible evidence outside of Dorp anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, nothing he says in the dream suggests beyond any doubt that she caused all the agony for her husband and child. So what do we know? Moena was found guilty in some fashion and sentenced to be executed. He says, I don't believe Severian ever learns how this happened or who found her. You know, Was it the Alcaldi who found her guilty, a, a jury? Not Severian. So next, Eusebia is her accuser. 
This implies that Eusebia brought charges or at least made accusations that led to Morwenna being suspected of poisoning. Without the accusation, we can presume Morwenna would not have been investigated, at least. Then next, Stachys and Chad are indeed dead. (laughs) We have a body. Yeah, we do. No one in Saltis appears to disagree that they are dead and that their death was unusual. Moena asserts that it was a disease, but contrary opinion, possibly from Eusebia, possibly not, is that they were poisoned. It is at least plausible that Moena's scenario is right, as Eusebia herself seems to reconsider that possibility before she dies. Enough people have repeated the story, which at least somewhat implies that enough people believe in Moena's innocence to have proposed that. Okay, next, Mm -hmm. Frederick the Prosecutor doesn't credit Severian's conclusions about why Morwenna had not been physically abused. He, he says that Severian didn't know Morwenna or Saltis or much of anything beyond the operations of this guild. So I don't see why we should give any credit to him here. It might even be the case that such abuses don't happen in Saltis, and there is no conclusion that we can draw from it all. Severian does not and cannot know. Next, the Alcalde is quite enthusiastic about Morwenna's execution, but it seems to be more for the novelty of doing it than a genuine belief in her guilt, although mm-hmm. he may have been the one to find her guilty. At the execution, he's more hesitant until she's actually executed, and this seems unlikely to be out of fear, as he was perfectly willing to go in first after Barnock. But there is definitely something about her death that changes him. Quote, the Alcalde straightened himself and seemed to become a new man. Yeah, that's one thing, by the way, that I just didn't pick up on. That, yeah, mm-hmm. when he's going after Barnock, he's all gung-ho. And then something about this is different and makes him feel yeah. weird. And, and Well, so I think Severian actually points to that. Notes yeah, that he, he does. And, but he says, Severian kind of says, oh, it's like stage fright. And he was getting yeah. nervous in the performance. But he'd been doing, yeah, he, he was a comfortable He's usually most comfortable in front of people. So. Yeah. yeah. And... So Frederick posits, you know, was he one of her enemies? You know, that's, I'll tell you, that's really something I've never honestly considered at all. But yeah, it makes sense. Next, Morwenna professes her innocence to the end. Eusebia interrupts and offers her the bouquet. And then Morwenna declares that she forgives everyone and that she's ready. Severian notes that Morwenna is, quote, a prisoner likely to arouse quite undesirable feelings of sympathy in the crowd. Next, Eusebia proclaims that Marwenna was innocent after her execution and declares that, quote, I killed her. She does not, however, say that she killed Stachys and Chad. She also claims that she knew Marwenna well enough to know that she would hold poison back for herself. But this seems to be contingent upon the idea that she was guilty, as the fact Morwenna did not do this, appears to convince uh, Eusebius of her innocence. Mm-hmm. She's extremely happy that Morwenna has died, but beyond that, we learn nothing as she dies almost immediately after. And so, he concludes, that seems to be it. If there's any other actual facts beyond the start of Claw, I'm unable to re- remember them. I think the case against Morwenna, as Severian knows it, is quite weak but not so obviously flawed that it's unbelievable. Perhaps Moena was known for her knowledge of things that could be used as poisons, as Eusebia implies, though we can't know if it's true 
as Eusebia admits to bias, and there is no corroborating testimony. She might be guilty. She was found guilty and sentenced at least. But if there's any possible doubt in the evidentiary record, Severia knows almost all of it and almost none of the evidence that strongly weights the scale of guilt. I think it's perfectly reasonable that he might question whether she was innocent, and this might have been more of a conflict than he's admitting in the page, given Jonas's observations. And at the same time, it's perfectly reasonable for him to dismiss those doubts by mm-hmm. convincing himself that she was convicted on more evidence than he was aware of, and that it's not his place to second guess the El Calde or the jury or whoever Judge Moena. Okay. But... You can tell someone's written a lot of briefs before. <laughs> <laughs> But Frederick dispenses with my theory, too. He says, now, I don't know what happened, but I know you guys love a crazy theory. So here's a curiositous earthus. Oh, we can play the music. Curiositas earthus. Neither Merwenna nor Eusebia poisoned Bouquet, and the Bouquet mate not have even been directly poisoned. Mark points out that Eusebia was sniffing the flowers prior to that last moment. In fact, she inhaled their perfume rapturously at least once. Opponents of the Eusebia poisoned herself crowd have a pretty strong argument that the flowers couldn't be pre-poisoned because a rapturous inhalation doesn't sound to me like a little sniff-sniff that would only get a tiny bit of poison. Mm-hmm. That lends credence to the notion that the flowers were poisoned at the execution. But the idea that Morwenna would have such a poison is implausible to the point of seeming impossibly coincidental. So let's eliminate the impossible and see what remains. Is there anyone else who could have poisoned Eusebia? And then he quotes the text. Eusebia was about to speak, but I silenced her with a look. The gap-toothed grinning man beside her waved with some of a start I recognized Hathor. With her right hand in mine, as though we were taking part in a country dance, we made a slow, formal circuit of the platform. Hathor was beside himself with delight, and though I tried to shut out the sound of his voice, I could hear him boasting of his acquaintance with me to people around him. Eusebia held up her bouquet to Marwenna, calling, Here, you'll need these soon enough. Then, after the execution, Innocent! I knew her, so careful. She would have kept something back, poisoned for herself. She would have died before you got her. And Hathor grasped her arm and pointed to me. My master, mine, my own. Well, okay. Yep. Greg. We walked right past that grabbing her arm part. Yes. Yeah, we, yep. Yeah, totally, totally blew it. And you know where this is going. Hathor had the opportunity. He even grabbed her arm. But, Craig, did he have the means? Well, of course, he could have talked to Marwenna, and she could have told him where to get the poison or told him how to prepare it. But I want to remind everyone of the rather peculiar parallels is too strong. But Hathor and Severian have an interesting Venn diagram crossovers. (laughs) Even if we dispense with his violet-eyed sex doll and her dove-like hands, he knows a lot about torture. He might well be an exiled or runaway journeyman from the Madachin. Mm-hmm. Well, the torturers 
know about potent poisons. In a couple chapters, we're going to have a conversation between Severian and Gerlo, where he shows him a jar of a powdery substance that uses an aphrodisiac. And he says, it's a poison and you can only take as much as you get under your fingernail. So if he is a former torturer, if he's in the experience with, with torture, then he would have experience with that substance as well. So we've got opportunity. We've got a means motive. That's tricky. It could just be out of pleasure for mayhem. Frederick supposed that, you know, he might have done it just to shut Eusebia up because she was <laughs> spoiling Severian's spectacle. I'll tell you honestly, Craig, I'm now convinced Haythor poisoned Eusebio. So here's my own curiositus earthus. Oh. And thanks, Frederick. Thanks, low faithlessness. Morwenna was a poisoner or a secret apothecary, a witch. And so was Eusebia. Her statement about what Morwenna would do implies that they were confidants to some degree. In the, in the Book of the Long Sun, there's a secret coven of black mechanics who get together secretly and demonstrate their successes to each other. Yeah. Morwenna and Eusebia were associates in that capacity. But Eusebia didn't poison Stachys and Chat. They died of a sickness. If there was a poison, I think Eusebia and Morwenna would know it. But Eusebia didn't know for a fact that Morwenna poisoned them. She accused her out of spite and revenge, not because of the evidence. And her knowledge of poisons would allow her to assist in the investigation without acting as an authority in it to kind of direct it. And Eusebia's accusation, you know, would not be enough on its own. I imagine they probably found evidence that backed up that she was a folk apothecary, a witch, if you will, you know, like the witch in The Devil in the Forest. Mm -hmm. So Eusebia shows up at the execution and Hathor poisons her. Eusebia's confession exoneration is compelling. If Morwenna had the ability to procure a poison in prison, why not use it before the cops arrived or out at the stake when she's suffering from the midges and Eusebia? Why not poison Eusebia by the lake? No, he has the opportunity. I think he had the means. If Morwenna is a poisoner, and I think, you know, she's but in some sense a witch, then she could have directed how to make or procure the poison, but it would be one that someone around Soltis knew about. Maybe only the other witches knew, perhaps, but maybe it was brought, you know, all the way from the Citadel. But what about a motive? Low faithlessness and Frederick have been very helpful, but I'm not satisfied. I think there is a bigger picture here. It has something to do with Severian's connection to Morwenna, even before executing her. There's something, and I don't know what it is, but if Hathor is the poisoner, then he showed up at the execution with the poison, ready to use it. Unlike Agia, when he actually decides to kill, he's pretty successful at it. <laughs> I've already mentioned the, the torture fanboy intellectual who didn't show up for Agilus's execution. Agia says she gets to use Hathor's silver, and that guy was passing out silver to Severian in the night before. Interesting. Well, um, I before I could go full in on, on Hathor being the one who does this, I, I have so many other questions about him. I mean, but the one thing that all this did do was it made Hathor suspect. 
least, you know, he's, he's now a person of interest <laughs> if we're doing detective talk. Um, just because of the circumstances and everything. And I guess part of me can't buy it yet because that seems even a little bit more of a sort of scene stretch than to me more when a dropping the poison in there seems like a, a really not illogical thing, but just, just unlikely. Well, but it's, it's practically more convenient than probably so, dropping yeah, the poison. Yeah. So it's the, it's the rest of the narrative that's required. Yeah, and, and I do like, I have to say the one thing that really keeps me coming back is when she just, that he has her, he grabs, he grabs her, her arm. arm. Yeah. I mean, something about that is, yeah, I mean, for all of Will's talk about, you know, don't introduce a gun and then not use it. Like, why yeah. do that? I mean, yeah. So there's all kinds of reasons I could think of why he would do it. But point is, um, I'm holding that one in the back of my head for when we do more about Heather, because part of me wonders if, like, the thing that would convince me maybe is if it turns out that Heather actually is somehow intentionally or not involved in some kind of manipulation plot for Severian. Mm-hmm. And if this was feeding into that somehow, that would be really cool. That would, that would be a, you know, a huge backstory for him. Um, and we might get there. Uh, but I, I'm holding on to that as a possibility for connecting some dots with Heather though. I still, I have to admit for me, it's still my Occam's razor is still Merwin is innocent. Eusebia did it. Uh, <laughs> and I know, I know where there've already been lots of people arguing on online about, you know, well, what is the most straightforward or the most practical? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Everyone fights over that. <laughs> assumptions. Yeah. That's so, the high ground everyone goes for. But I, I'm impressed that they pulled that together and I like your, your connection there. Uh, oh, what'd you think, think of the, good. what did you think of Gerlo's uh, poison in his jar? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I like the that. fact that it comes up again. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of those proximity things where poison isn't talked about a whole lot in this book, but when it does, it's two different examples and really close in proximity. So mm-hmm. yeah. So should there be a, a connection? Maybe could be a plot connection could also be some kind of symbolic repetition, but the fact that it's there is something that I hadn't seen ever pulled into that moment before. So I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. I just, I always like when there's a third option when people are arguing terribly over (laughs) or why, and somebody else has like, what about Z? Yeah. (laughs) But I'm stunned after all these years, uh, I, you know, having a particular point of view, it looks so obvious. Uh, Then I'm vaguely reminded that there's an other point of view that, but then, Mm -hmm. and then I I completely changed my mind (laughs) in a matter of weeks because people say, well, you know, we have this and we have this. And so I never even considered that. Mm -hmm. I never even considered that avenue that was open. And the other thing too, is that Heather just opens that up to all kinds of other reasons why Mm -hmm. this is going on, right? Just because he's bringing in his whole backstory and the Asia thing and the the possible connection between him and whatever is going on in the big backstory. Yeah. Right. So really cool. And for those of you right now who are like, Oh my Lord, (laughs) can't we move past this? Now we're, we're, we're getting Heather involved in this when I'm sure there are some people out there, right? Like, well, what does this matter? Why does it matter so much? Who it might matter. When, it, it might matter. It might, but I mean, it certainly does to Severian at this point. Yep. And he he mentions Marwenna multiple times. A later lot. On, yeah. So he, he, know, comes, he doesn't move on from Marwenna, so I don't guess we're going to be able to either. <laughs> All right. So more on chapter five. Sarkis Mage on Reddit. He says, 
You were trying to remember whether Vodalus confirmed the theft of his destrier? Well, it's in chapter 11. He says, Last night, I myself rode into Saltus to speak with you, talking to Severian, but I had my mount stolen for my pains and accomplished not a straw. Well done, Sarkis Mage. Yep. Yeah, you can tell how far ahead we haven't reread <laughs> up to this point. <laughs> yeah. Little things like that. Like, well, whoa, whoa. It's hard to keep everything in your head oh, at yeah. the same time. It's oh, yeah. just, once again, this wouldn't work if it was just you and me. So the, oh, yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah, we would have totally, totally blown by Hathor's possible. As a, oh, yeah. As a thing Absolutely. The Michael Andre Driussi. So has some thoughts about the mine and surrounding area. He says, some thoughts about the mine. Putting the various details together, it's a bit confusing. Is there only one mine? Or is this one that Severian is being lured to the only Artarchial one? The landscape around Saltus is littered with mine trailings. If I recall correctly, Severian and Jonas pass through one dump on the way to Saltus, and then they ride through another with the Vodalari, making at least two separate ones. But it seems that each trailing should be closer to its source mine. Maybe. And this Autarchial mine has no trailings. Whatever. Just an indication that it used to have a wooden ramp or access way. Yeah. So it seems more abandoned or repurposed as a fortified storehouse mm-hmm. for the Autark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think that it's really being used as a mine unless the eight men themselves are digging down there and getting the resource. I mean, what do they do when they're yeah. not guarding the mine itself? Yeah. And I just don't know that we have much of an idea. I mean, for them to call it a mine makes me think that they would be using it somehow but i don't know i mean i can also see how you i mean how many stories have old abandoned mines that, <laughs> you know people climb into so yeah right speaking of michael though we should mention because i don't remember if we did it last time but he just had um yet another chapter guide come out this oh, time yeah yeah about the uh about the ernie smith's books so yeah the borrowed land and interlibrary loan. interlibrary loan yeah. yeah so just another chapter guide sort of summary of the the events but yeah so that's Online um, or ebook form and paper. Yeah. Get it while they're hot. Yeah. Let's see. What are, oh, we have stuff on Malrubius. Uh, Brett Loftusness says uh, Some thoughts on Malrubius. I've been reading ahead and just finished Short Sun. It's been a long time since I'd last read it. One thing that struck me is that the narrator visits Severian a few times and has a long conversation with him. And when he visits Earth, he dresses himself in a black robe with a red-trimmed hood and fashions his Azoth into a long, double-edged black sword. The last time he visits, at the end of uh, Return to the World, Gurlo comes and scolds Severian, and Oreb flies out, out of the cell, and he says, What is that thing doing here? And Severian replies, It belongs to Master Malrubius, Master. And then... And the narration says, Father, which is the narrator, he comes up behind Gerlo, puts his hand on his shoulder. Gerlo turns around, sees the narrator, who he calls Father, and his mouth dropped open. It seems very suggestive to me that Master Malrubius is what he calls Silkhorn, the narrator. Not sure exactly what to make of it. And The Short Sun was written long after the Book of the New Sun as well, but still interesting. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I know about that scene. I've always known about that scene. I don't know what to do with it. And it has a lot to do with who I understand 
uh, Silk's body to be, who Silk is supposed to look like. One thing we know, he's he's blonde mm-hmm. and blue-eyed. So if the short scenario is walking around in Silk's body, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> it doesn't, I mean, I have a lot of ideas about who Marubius is and an heir of Typhon is not where I was going with that. So I don't know what to do with that. I'm still sorting those threads out, but that also just gets super complicated with Malrubius also being, um, you know, an aquaster of the created by the Yasadis, yeah. which is what kind of seems to be there saying at the end of Citadel. So then for him also to be silk or silk horn. Yeah. It just, it gets really complicated. Well, I mean, he could still look like him. It's true. I mean, it's true. could the idea is that he would have to look like Silk. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. I, so, but, but well done. I mean, well done. I don't know what to say. Let's see. New listener, Neil Smith. Neil at the cross. And master level patron. So y'all be sure to say thank you to him. He has an interesting theory about Hathor's sex doll. It says, fanciful theory, Aglis is, in fact, the doll. Agia is a real woman. Hathor has been stalking, courting Agia, and either gave Agia the doll or she stole it. Either way, it works for this. If it doesn't have a face on, its underlying structure, whether mechanical or chemical, but probably biological chemical, looks like the death head that Severian saw. And the cords are the way to attach faces. When Agalus puts his hands up to his face and Severian thinks he has removed the mask, he has instead put on a face. And Severian frequently misinterprets what he sees, even if he reports his observations accurately. Then when Agalus is in jail, Agia is trying to use it for the last time. That is, use the sex doll. That's interesting. He's got all the pieces to actually work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and the thing that gets me on that one is the bands. And also I love how Wolf will play with. Yeah. Severian saw him take off a mask, but maybe what he really did was got it backwards. I mean, that's, that seems like yeah. such a good kind of Wolfian thing, but yeah. And I, I, yeah, don't, I, no. I don't know. Cause then again, that now I've got to ask all kinds of other questions about how Heather. Yeah. It just gets confusing again, but that's pretty ingenious. Yeah. And he says when the sex doll is gone, Hathor has an additional motivation to hate Severian in addition to being manipulated by Agia. And it's why he speaks of it during the first meeting with Severian. I believe that the doll must be a biological chemical or a clone or a kybit of some type because Severian sees Agalus naked and then removed the head. And he doesn't point out anything that seems like Agalus isn't like a person. That, by the way, in addition to Agalus's discussion with Severian in the cell, are the facts that make me toss this theory out. But it's amusing theory up to that point. I, you know, mm-hmm. that's as good as I've got. So he also pings on the possibility, as I did, that Agia might be a witch. She apparently has a twin name, he says, and supposes as so many have that she's a witch and that there's some kind of kinship with Severian. I mean, personally, I no longer think she comes from the South. I think she comes from the Northern forest and that's why she goes barefoot and knows, you know, how far away a Smilodon is by its roar. But you know, that Agia is Severian's sister has a long and esteemed heritage and there are just loads Mm -hmm. of associations between her and the witches. 
Also, we have an Apple podcast review. Yes, indeed. A good one. Not that, <laughs> not that the other ones weren't, but, <laughs> but yeah. This- <laughs> and it's, yeah, as uh, Charles Gillingham wanted to be sure that it wasn't longer than his. Well, it competes, but it is not longer than. Oh, okay. I, I didn't actually go back and check. Good. Good, yeah. good, good. So this is from Fidgety Bits, and it's entitled, Finally. For years now, I have been loaning or giving friends copies of Wolf's books of the New Sun series for selfish purpose of gaining another person that I could discuss these books with. Mostly that tactic has failed. I, I, I feel you. As much as I can't conceive of the notion, Wolf does not capture and ensnare everyone with his writing. I have had to date two friends with whom I could have any meaningful discussion of the story and none who had read the series multiple times like myself. Imagine my excitement when I discovered this podcast. Unlike the other two Wolf podcasts that I listened to faithfully and enjoy, here was the format that I dreamed of. Fellow fans discussing the material while trying to connect the dots spread throughout many books and several worlds without worrying about spoiling the story for anyone. I was hooked. When I discovered the podcast, I was in the process of remodeling my house and I had nothing but time to fill my headphones and keep me company while I worked. I'm not ashamed to admit that over the course of a week, I listened to every single episode of this show back to back all day, every day until I was caught up. I enjoyed it that much. That's nice. That's very cool. If there had been five years worth archived, I'm pretty sure I would have listened to five years. Well, that's actually <laughs> encouraging since that's exactly how long it's going to take. <laughs> and take to finish new sign, yeah. That's right. This show is awesome. Well-produced, excellent sound quality, and well-edited. I think he's listening to a different show. <laughs> the hosts are entertaining, insightful, and display one of the greatest traits, curiosity. They have willingness to listen debate, and discuss a constantly evolving understanding of this fantastically rich and complex world that Wolf has given us. Theories get dragged into the middle of the discussion, put to the test. Some stand and some fall, some wounded, slink off to perhaps return again later. James and Craig don't claim to be experts, but they are genuine fans of the material. They are the people that I had been looking for all this time. I don't subscribe to many podcasts, but this is the one that I look forward to again and again. If you've read Wolf before, I can't recommend this podcast enough. If you haven't, please go do that now and then come back and listen to this show. That is a good review. That's awesome. So sorry if we, for indulging us and letting us read the whole thing, but it's, 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 it's good to toot your own horn every now and then. And that's, that's a really cool one. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of why we did it was we wanted another place for those people. Thank right. you so much for all the kind, kind words. And if we, yeah. if you ever show up and, and like you're, we know you from another name somewhere else on Facebook or Reddit or whatever, let us know. Cause that was right. Really cool. So we have new uh, journeyman level patrons. Marcus Gavea and Alan Mozik at the journeyman level. Thank you guys so much. We really appreciate the help. At the master level, thank you, Mark LeBeau. Oh, Marie LeBeau. Neil Smith. Neil at the cross. Mark Pellegrino. Pellegrino. Michael Andre Driussi. I'm sorry, serious. It's so delirious. 
Joshua Stevens. He said you can call me Joshua. Keith Adams. By me, Adam and Lawrence Brown. And I've been from here to Lawrence, Kansas. Jonathan Pierce. Chris Thompson. With a Thompson gun for hire. Cian Greening. Doggy treats. Jackson Montgomery. But I'm going to Jackson. Gary Owens. Gary, Indiana. What a wonderful name. Jackson Montgomery says he's a long haul trucker. But I'm going to Jackson. And he listens to us while he's on the road. Lots of time. Please don't pull out your copy while you're driving to go check things, though. <laughs> All right. Well, so we're going to, I don't know. I don't have a. I don't have a clever intro for this. This is a little spelunking trip uh, here. Keep your head down, everybody. <laughs> Something's going to happen. Chapter 6. Blue Light. Same day this novel started, or this volume started. Mm. Severian got up. He had to go to the well to wet his head because the water pitcher was full of wine. They dragged Barnock out of his house. Severian talked to the green man. He executed Morwenna and the cattle thief. But it's evening now, and Severian has rushed to a cave, hoping to see Thecla, who didn't die and was hiding out here in order to meet her. Of course, it's all fake. The letter was sent by Agia, not Thecla. The whole thing is a trap to kill Severian. If Severian left the tower on Sunday, this is either Friday or Saturday night. As I've said, I can't bring myself to believe it's any later than that. Now, Craig, I've been waiting for this chapter for so long because <laughs> this scene is someone that I associate so strongly with cosmological myth as described by Hamlet's Mill. Okay. This is a cosmological scene. The scene takes place in the night sky at the great rift and apparently vast dark space in the milky way uh, if you've grown up in the city you might have never seen the milky way i once spoke to a full-grown adult who when i pointed out the milky way she thought it had been just a metaphor so, oh wow you can actually it's actually milky way. wow it does look like spilled milk <laughs> ollie asked me the other day he'd forgotten that we've shown it to him but he my 12 year old he was like oh you really can see it and i was like yeah but we've you know he's seen it but he's been tiny and otherwise we're always right. around chicago and yeah. So, but the Milky Way is our galaxy. It's a galaxy we are part of. And because it's a disk, it looks like a huge line of stars from one end of the horizon to the other. It flows over the head of the constellation Orion and it crosses the line of the elliptic just above Orion's raised hand. So, in a sense, Orion is holding up the sun. And, you know, that's Kronos with his curved scythe. And that's Hermes with his curved sword. And Perseus with Hermes' curved sword. That's Latro's curved sword from Soldier of the Mist. And that's Severian with the claw, the curved thorn, that thematically is 100% associated with his sword, Terminus Est. He gets the claw within 24 hours of getting the sword and within a half hour of drawing it from its sheath for the first time. And when the gem is smashed, the sword is smashed. And I believe this is the basis of Wolf making these choices. So, starting with Orion as Severian, 
we follow a brook, the Milky Way, and we follow it to a cave, the Great Rift, and this is where Severian met Alton in the darkness of the library. This is where he met Agalus in the dim rag shop. In both circumstances, there was the ringing of the bell, and we're going to hear a bell ring in this cave a bit. This is the dark pit that Weir and Elizabeth dug in peace, and the ringing bell, there's the gun going off. And in Wizard Knight, the protagonist Abel is able to enter a cave much like this, walking through a brook in darkness to fight a dragon. And as I'll show, there are certain parallels between that scene and this. This is the same place in the sky, in the library. Dark Thecla was outside the library, an unspoken character of the conversation. That's the massive and dark constellation Aphiuchus. In the rag shop, Aphiuchus was Agia. And here is Agia as well, outside the cave. The significance of this place, remember that the sun's path and the Milky Way cross just above Orion's arm. He's the embodiment of, say, the Irish mythical hero Lu of the Long Arm, whose actions were central to driving the Fomorians underground, just as the Titans were driven underground. Same dynamics. And that crossroads above his arm is why Lu is the god of crossroads. And it's also why Silk's manse in the Book of the Long Sun is on Sun Street and Silver Street, the Milky Way and the Path of the Sun. But that's a podcast for another day. <laughs> well, this is where they cross on the other side of the celestial sphere. And at this point is where we're looking dead center into the Milky Way galaxy. And, this, and why is that a big deal? Well, children, once upon a time, not so long ago, but very much in the late 70s, the Mayan calendar loomed large in the imagination of a certain kind of person because that calendar predicted the approaching end of the world, popularly on 2012. But in fact, the end of the world it predicted was simply the end of an age. So the end of the world is like Ragnarok is the end of the world, the world that ends by fire or flood. It's a common myth across cultures. And the reason that this was the end of the world is that around this time was when the sun stood in front of the center of the galaxy on the winter solstice. And that's really interesting because the Mayans were not supposed to have the capability to detect the center of the galaxy. So I guess they got lucky. <laughs> the ringing of bells, the banging of a dying man in a freezer, the alarm as Silk catches the ball and wins the goal, Marubius banging his spoon. These are chimes that announce the end of the age, when the old stars descend into the underworld or beneath the sea or are destroyed in fire, and new stars are honored at festivals. Upon the end of a cycle, the sky shifts and the Milky Way with it. It's a metaphor, of course, because the Milky Way shifts in the sky imperceptibly over centuries. It's the tilting of the witch's tower, the crumbling of a tower, or a giant, or a tumbling stack of orange drink boxes. Now, some people are saying, get on with it. And we will now, but I needed to set the scene. This is where we can see Wolf's underlying structure through the drywall and frescoes. So what I want to know is if you feel like part of the reason he brings that up um, and it's so powerful in New Sun is, I know you said that that's how you think Wolf just kind of thinks in those terms, but would you say that there's a thematic reason? I mean, New Sun is so much about being on the cusp of a new age, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that's sort of what Severian's supposed to be bringing. So that image of Orion and, and sort of connecting 
Severian a little bit to Orion here. Do you think that that's putting something as like, is that image in particular something that's on the cusp of a new age? Or is that one part of it, um, part of the sun moving to a different, a different symbol? Yeah, that's exactly. Ultimately, it moves to a different constellation. But right. the point is, is that the stars that are ri- supposed to rise at sunset fail to rise on schedule. And now you must pick new stars. Mm-hmm. So where the sun is, the stars that the sun is in front of are no longer those stars anymore. It's other stars. The, and other stars are now important as right. the sun moves forward. The constellations, of course, are, well, you know, they're fairly random. <laughs> they, it, it, and they and they can and they change mm-hmm. over time and their importance changes over time. But the fact that they exist means that the sun moves from one house to another house. Right. So I was just trying to get like specifically for Severian. Like, do you feel like there's is there one particular like change of a certain age? Like, like I don't know that Severian himself is really like the coming age of Aquarius. You mean as in is this scene so important? Right. Right. That's a very good question, and I'm not really 100% sure because it does happen over and over in this book with the ringing of the bells, right. the loc- this particular mm-hmm. scene. Is it foreshadowing? Is it just because each of these scenes are always being callbacks to something in the sky? Does Wolf write his stories to fit with the stars or does he just figure out ways to make the stars fit into the scenes of the stories? And right. I'm not sure about that. It's like the autark and father Aniri making decisions. No one's sure who's pulling the strings <laughs> at any moment. I just think it'd be really cool to figure out if it's possible to figure out like, does Wolf see Severian and this new son as playing out a very specific like age movement <laughs> so yeah. that it's not like, um, you know, like I don't think Severian represents either the Aquarian age or the age of Pisces. Like I don't know. No, no always oh, so. it seems like if something would make sense, it would right. be moving from something to Pisces, like to right. fit the to fit the Christ story. I honestly don't th- that would fit, but I don't really notice that he's interested in a specific message other than the mm. mechanics of it that he's he's mm, writing gotcha. myth and he's deliberately following the rules of myth gotcha i'm gonna keep my eye out though because that'd be really cool if there was a way to not nail him down but just see if a certain trend comes up right of, of a particular one the one thing that is true about this scene and that this is i think the one time when severian really becomes aware of the claws mm-hmm. power yeah like like not like it's not that he hasn't seen weird things with it before but it's it's not just a special gym it's uh it's become right. something that something has a power and agency of its own yeah and that he for the first time i think really feels himself tied to the story of the conciliator mm-hmm. and that he's now involved in it right because i yeah. don't think before then it's just a thing and he's like i need to give it back to him but he never really connects any sort of larger meaning to it. Whereas I think here he does the, right. like with that scene eventually with the apes and how they react and everything, that is a big mindset shift. For him. Right. 
So yeah, literally a little light goes on in his head. Yeah, and the, well, very much literally a light goes on, right? It lights up that whole cave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's see. So Varian walks through the cave up a stream of running water, such a continuous sound that he soon stops even noticing it as a sound. And suddenly the narrow tunnel, so low that he has to walk double, opens up and he finds himself in a large chamber. But it's totally dark. But he can tell that it's large because he can hear the changed sound of the water. He feels for the edges of the wall, but he doesn't find it. He uses his sword. It's in his sheath. He uses it to feel around for the walls, but he doesn't find anything. Then he calls Thecla's name and hears only a series of echoes, then silence. And then he says, oh yeah, I was supposed to follow the water until I found a rock it was coming from. So he wades around looking for a rock, but in a few seconds, he hears something far off. And then a few steps more and he sees a light and it's not moving. Right, it's not moving. And But but that that idea of him seeing a light, that happens a couple other times in this chapter and I had never really noticed it before. Like he sees the light and it, it's eventually what he's going to, you know, see with the 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 eight men. And then the claw, of course, is a light and a darkness. But then also when he leaves, there's a little bit of light from the opening of the cave. So you get all these different sort of ideas of one tiny light, bit of light in a lot of darkness, which so fits well with, you know, a star imagery or sun imagery or something like that. Um, But I, I had just never noticed like (laughs) how much a part of that, of this chapter, that little following a light image is. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Yeah, well, this light, it, it's not moonlight, which would be green. He calls the moon the emerald reflection of the fabled forests of the moon. And mm-hmm. also, this isn't a torch with red fire. And it wasn't a candle, which is yellow. And it wasn't the white light that comes from the autarch's flyers. Instead, this is a luminous mist of no color all, but sort of a dirty yellowish green, you know, like starlight. And what he's seeing is... Do you remember, by the way, this is, this is totally an aside, but do you remember from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, there's a throwaway line about the uh, conscious color blue, that there's some alien race that's uh, a, a sentient... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Color blue. A, a particular race, yes, Which, that is a particular shade of blue. Right, yeah. yeah. I always thought that was so cool. Anyway, <laughs> that jumped into my head for absolutely no reason, except for we're talking about color and light. There's no telling when that's going to come back to you. Sorry. <laughs> now, what he's seeing is dozens, maybe hundreds of man-ape people descending on him in the vast openness of the cave. And the people have this luminescent fur or hair all over their bodies. And there are so many of them that they appear to be a mist. And then that mist is joined by another glowing mist, and then by another and another, on and on. And this sort of horror does give me the feel of the moment in Fellowship of the Ring when the party realizes that they're trapped. And I think that mention of Tolkien is really important because this is definitely something that this part gets mentioned alongside Moria a lot. Um, right. Sort of maybe this is partly a nod to Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Sort of him taking, at least being, you know, familiar with that image and that the sound he's going to hear later is just like, you know, maybe the Balrog coming right. up. And, and I know there's a an Earthless post out there where someone just said that maybe it wasn't a big mystery, but it was uh, not knowing what that sound was. But maybe it really is just a call out to the Balrog that's <laughs> down there. And, that you know, I, I don't think that's it, but I 
could certainly see that as possible. I mean, we all know how much Wolf was a fan mm-hmm. of Tolkien. And if you haven't read his essay called, um, oh, shoot, Something at the Mountains. Uh, what is it? Best Introduction to the Mountains. That's it. Cool. But yeah, if you haven't read that, there is a version of it online. There was a better one that got taken down somewhere, but there's a version of it. You should definitely look for it. Excellent essay. I don't agree with everything, and it kind of oversimplifies the Middle Ages, but it still says a whole lot about, I feel like, when people talk about Wolf as a conservative, he mentions some things in there that I think are more what people are saying, but it's not its not necessarily the modern sense of a conservative mm, that yeah. I think a lot of people talk about. Anyway, that's the closest place to a good statement of that that I feel like Wolf ever kind of just laid out. But anyway, I, I like this part as being a connection to Moria because Moria is the part that's the big turning point where things get serious, right? In Fellowship right. of the Ring, because Gandalf dies and and the party's realizing what's it cost and all this, everything else. But this is also a big point too, if we're thinking, I mean, if we're going to do a kind of Joseph Campbell, hero's monomyth kind of thing, this is the point where the hero goes to a kind of underworld, right? And, mm-hmm. and comes out changed a little bit. I mean, the fact that you talked about how it connects to mythic moments in the Hamlet's Mill sense, I mean, there's all kinds of other ways you could do it here. I mean, with, yeah. with like like Joseph Campbell thing, with Tolkien, I mean, it hits so many of those sort of archetypal patterns of stories. And he does it in a way that is really cool because it's both traditional in the sense that Severian comes back and he's going to be you know, more focused, which is what usually happens whenever the hero enters the underworld. They're in a, they're they're going through a crisis, and he's kind of going through a crisis here with Thecla mm-hmm. a little bit, but it's not the same kind of despair crisis that a lot of times when when a hero has to go to the underworld that they do, like Gandalf dying. That is a moment of despair in the underworld. Um, we don't quite get that, but what we do get is this moment of yeah, sort of new purpose. Like he realizes how much the, what the claw really is and how special it could potentially be. And even sort of, I feel like in the awareness, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but people have argued before about why did he save Asia's life? And I actually feel like part of the reason is because of the claw is because mm. what he's just seen and got with the claw, he's, he's more moved to have a little pity or mercy or just, whatever it is that even though he knows, yeah, he's going to kill him. And Jonas remarks on it later says, you know, I wouldn't have been able to do that Um, (laughs) really to kind of mark that, Hey, you did something actually really kind of special there. And um, so, yeah. So anyway, it fits all those moments and where here, I think what it is, is the first part where early in the second novel, Severian gets some kind of resolve. And it's the first time he really feels like he's got a purpose in all these random adventures that are happening. And the fact that you tie that with that moment works really well. And he is going into the underworld to reclaim a love who has died, right? So yeah. that kind of fits oh, yeah. at that level. It doesn't, it's different. It is Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah. yeah. And, and, or, and just like Orpheus, he doesn't come back with her either. So. Right. And there's this whole feeling of horror that, like I said, reminds me of, Philip the Ring, but because this is a wolf story, yeah. only on a second reading is it's horrific. <laughs> because the first time, it's very mm-hmm. just oh, look at that pretty lights. Yeah, but but we are we are told enough to know as first time readers that something bad is about to happen. I think, mm-hmm. and yes, of course, these lights 
are yellow, green, no particular color. And they call to mind the Milky Way galaxy itself, and for good reason. And Severian, showing the instincts for self-preservation that we've come to expect from him, walks up the stream toward the luminescent mist that, for all he knows, is a poisonous gas. <laughs> At least this time he has the excuse that he still has the hope that Thecla's out there somewhere. Yep. So he hasn't quite yet shifted over to just being aware of himself. He still feels like maybe, maybe <laughs> I am still in that reverie of thinking that maybe she's still alive. Yeah, yeah. And Severian pauses to compare the memory of this event to the insane prisoners of the Oubliette's third level, the ones who've gone mad. It's difficult for me to concentrate on the events of the next few minutes. Perhaps everyone holds in his subconscious certain moments of horror, as our Oubliette held in its lowest inhabited level those clients whose minds had long ago been destroyed or transformed into consciousness no longer human. Like them, these moments shriek and lash the walls with their chains, but are seldom brought high enough to see the light. What I experienced under the hill remains with me as they remained with us, something I endeavor to lock within the furthest recesses of my mind, but am from time to time made conscious of. And it is cool to point out there just for a moment that he does talk about a light. <laughs> right? Yeah, memory and, does and it again, of, yeah. Memory as a light. And, yeah. and it's very in dips into some foreshadowing of when he was on the ship Samru, traveling up the Guile to the Citadel, near the end of Citadel the Autarch. He compares seeing the oars dipping into the filthy waters in the green moonlight, and it reminding him of this moment. Not long ago, when the Samru was still near the mouth of Guile, I looked over the stern rail by night. There I saw each dipping of the oars appear as a spot of phosphorescent fire, and for a moment imagined that those from under the hill had come for me at last. They're mine to command now, but I have small comfort in that. In other words, you know, the men now obey him. Yeah. Right, right. Um, but it's such a weird thing for this to still have that much horror over him that even though he commands them now, things that remind him of this moment are still terrifying. Yeah. Because he doesn't forget it, right? For him, it's as real later as it is now. All right, we're, how do you, time is all messed up. <laughs> yeah, he, he kind of literally relives it. Right. And by the way, if you want to read about the further adventures of the Samru after the Book of the New Sun, check out the short story, The Map in the Endangered Species Collection. That's right. But at this moment, when they are just mists of light, Severian finds all this encouraging. He figures what he's seeing is a thousand distant torches, each held by a welcoming ally. <laughs> then I heard very faintly, such roaring as I used to hear from the tower called the Bear when the beasts were given their food. Even then, I think, I might have escaped if I had turned and fled. I did not. The roaring grew, not quite any noise of animals, yet not the shouting of the most frenzied human mob. In this book, we get a lot of horror movie moments when the audience is shouting, Get out of the basement! Turn around! She's the monster, you idiot! But, you know, soon these individual lights start taking shape. Severian says, rather, each was that figure called in art a star, having five equal <laughs> points. They are star-shaped. And this, by the way, is such a cool way to describe lights turning into people. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, I remember when I read it, well, I don't remember the first time I read it, but every time I do read it, I always think, how cool of an image that is. Cause I always forget it's coming. <laughs> and then he does it. I'm like, Oh yeah, a person is kind of like a five pointed thing. And then 
since they're apes, they're ape-like, they're shorter, so it, it fits. Even yeah. fits, yeah. And suddenly, the dime drops for Severian. The lights are getting close enough and are luminous enough that he is in some kind of underground city that's been excavated from the mine. And he calls the light of the man-ape people a corpse light. In Shadow of the Torturer, Chapter 3, Episode, Severian buries his coin by the light of a corpse candle. And I have a definition for corpse candle, or alternately a corpse light, but I don't think he's using it that way. A corpse light is a floating ball of light that's seen moving just above the ground between a cemetery and a dying person's house and back again. It's like related to a will-o'-wisp or an ignis fatu that you know, perhaps more appropriately, misleads travelers. That's really cool. And I think I just thought of the corpse candle as made from the fat of dead people for wax or something. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> so yeah. This, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Lexicon Earthus doesn't even list this term. Hey, Mantis, that's something you can add. Also, this is quite an aside, <laughs> but an entry for Kibi has never been included in the Lexicon Earthus or the Errata. Oh, is that? That's, that's right. I yeah. think we, I had forgotten that. I hate to suggest that Wolf is making up terms, but if I were going to guess, I'd take a stab that a corpse candle in Severian's world is a kind of special candle, maybe used to carry bodies of the necropolis, or maybe, like you say, is made from corpses. I'll propose here that Severian is saying that the cave lit by the manate bodies, it has a sense of being lit in the sickly greenish yellow light of a corpse candle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course he's still calling the eight people moving stars. So that initially fits, but later he's going to refer to the light of the cave when they're all massed together with their glowing bodies as the corpse light. And that makes sense. Assuming Wolf is committing himself only to real terms. Yeah. It's a strange thing to call i mean i always think of it as maybe he's trying to suggest that the fact that these poor creatures only kind of live a half human life mm. that that's why the the corpse light would be appropriate you know that they're that something about him has died and passed on or is being mourned like they're mourning their humanity the whole time or something um but to me it's still in i mean granted this is before he sort of humanizes them a little bit once they react to the claw but, exactly yeah. the light of the claw changes them Right. Yeah, there is something here about them being, yeah, dead or or in a connected to dead. Not literally dead, but but something about him is soulless or dead or something like that. And the light of the claw changes that. So yeah, qualities of light we're yeah. seeing play out here too. And remember that the minerals of Earth are all tapped up. What people mine are artifacts from the past. But this mining of the ancient city was so far in the past that it was before the eight men were settled here, right? Before their evolution branched from the surface-dwelling mankind. Yeah, that seems to be the case. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and read this next section. Among these masses stood squat pillars of an ordered irregularity, such as I've sometimes noticed in ricks of firewood, from which every stick protrudes yet goes to make the whole. And then later... Buildings, apparently of the most ancient construction, built of seamless gray stone and soiled everywhere by the dung of bats. The irregular pillars were stacks of ingots in which each layer was laid across the last. From their color, I judged them to be silver. There were a hundred in each stack, and surely many hundreds of stacks in the buried city. Now, 
he sees what the Manate people are, and he describes his sudden recognition. Have you ever toiled by night toward what seemed a cottage window and found it to be the bale fire of a great fortress? Or climbing, slipped and caught yourself and looked below and seen the fall a hundred times greater than you had believed? If you have, you'll have some notion of what I felt. Ooh. Now, <laughs> plus, yeah, I have not honestly had many uh, experiences of walking at night and <laughs> seeing a great fortress rise up in front of me. Right. Yeah. But I get it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And now he calls them man apes, and maybe they were all male, but he's probably not in a position to recognize male from female. He describes them as thicker of shoulder and more twisted than men, like apes, in that they had hairy, crooked bodies, long arms, short legged, and thick necked. Their teeth were like the fangs of smilodons, curved and saw edged, extending a finger's length below their massive jaws. Their eyes are big. Sometimes he calls them saucer-sized. They've evolved to soak up all the available light. Their ears, Severian calls them flap ears, but I don't think he means they have floppy ears like a hound or rabbit. Their ears have grown large to be sensitive to sound when the light is insufficient even for their eyes. Right. And this description of these things even though we always, even in all the writing about them, people call them man-apes and, and treat them more like, yeah, like gorilla type things. But the description, I mean, to go back to Tolkien, the description in everything but the hairy bodies is an orc. Yeah. Right? From from the, the tusk-like things, that they're much more orcs than apes. And um, yeah, so that's one thing that I think more about it fitting, because in Tolkien's world, Orcs, of course, are, you know, malformed elves, like originally Melkor mm-hmm. and whatnot, took the elves and, and turned them into orcs and mutated them and turned them into this mess. Um, just a little bit of that in the way that Saruman, in the movies, they really make it look like Saruman's doing like genetic engineering, which mm-hmm. he, he kind of was, but yeah. it's never in that detail in the books. But anyway, but um, but yeah, so if we're already getting a bit of a Moria sense here, then to think that these things are supposed to be resonant with orcs, and of course, he's just got the good word ape for him. Um, I feel like it's pretty clever that Wolf is probably thinking orcs, and then said apes, in, and it does that cool thing where, you know, we're, we're so used to seeing them, thinking them as apes that I know a lot of the times in my head, I think of them much more like apes, but really, I should probably be imagining orcs. Yeah, I think so. Right. And then he realizes that the roar he heard was the sound of their many voices. Now he can see because of their glowing fur, but he can't run fast enough through the water to get away. So he jumps out of the water to a dry portion. And it seems there is some part of the city structure behind him so that no one could get at his back. But he still got them to either side now, and and he can't rush out of the cave. So one thing I was going to ask about the buildings, did when he talks about them as a single kind of gray stone, were you thinking of this as like concrete structures or? It could be metal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just don't know, but I've always tried to picture what was actually being mined here because when they talk about ingots, it seems like, well, were they mining actual materials um, or was it the kind of mining that we find out goes on in the rest of it? Like you said about for artifacts and whatnot. And it was even, I was wondering like, instead of ingots, does he just, when it's dark, does he miss see them? And instead he's looking at like, I don't know, stacks of missiles that have just been sitting there forever or something like that. um, That also look kind of silver like or metallic. Um, But I don't know. It's like, I've always tried to, to parse these 
weird descriptions he gets of these buildings and of what was going on in this little underground city to see if there's some connection I should be making to some other kind of thing, but it's, it's so, so limited. I don't know. Do you have any sense of anything else? Well, I've always thought that this was an abandoned mine of the sort where they're excavating the city itself. And it's now Mm -hmm. uh, just a storehouse for the uh, for the autarchs, you know, silver and 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 treasure. Mm-hmm. The man apes live here. Maybe what they continue to mine this city deep in its recesses. They're they're treated as they are the autarch servants, but maybe they it's more of an alliance. That is to say, that they're deep, continually mining this city, and the the autarch says, okay, well. Why don't you keep an eye on my treasure too? Because they, it's not deep in the in the cave. It's really just at the mouth of the cave that these ingots mm-hmm. are. But yeah. Then again, we don't know what's deeper still. Right. I'm all trying to check now. Like, did he ever drop a stone down something like Pippin does to alert yeah. the orcs? Oh, that would have been. Can't. He does have Thecla echoing. Like right. Echoing yeah. Yeah. Echoing. Echoing. Yes. But, yeah. No, no, he does something even stupider than drop a stone down a well. <laughs> he calls that's, that's out. That's true. Yeah. That is true. The thing that was truly horrific about them is the uncanny valley aspect of their faces. It's evident to Severian that they are human inside there. Uh, he says perhaps it was their huge, pale, irised eyes. And it's, but it's only in the light of the claw that he says, oh, wow, these are actual people. It's only then that they actually look like people. At this point, they just look, he senses that there are people trapped in animal bodies. But their irises are not blue or brown, but they're maybe light gray, right? Yeah. He calls Mm -hmm. them pale. And their eyes are a bit oversized, as I said. He gives them a a metaphor that is expected of a young male in his male-oriented culture brought up among an even more male-oriented guild. As the old are imprisoned in rotting bodies, as women are locked in weak bodies that make them pray for the filthy desires of thousands, so these men were wrapped in the guise of lurid apes and knew it. Yeah. That is, you know, I guess that they knew they were changed drastically from their ancestors, or maybe he only means that, like humans, they were self-aware. And he says the worst part about those huge pale irised eyes they were the only part of them that did not glow, which I assume is because they're sucking in all the the light themselves rather than emitting it. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that could be. I also just thought, are, are they glowing because they're supposed to be radioactive? That's <laughs> some other thing. <laughs> well, they don't have fire, right? Just thinking they, especially of good <laughs> 80s. Yeah. I wonder if they were changed there, you know, on purpose at some point so that they wouldn't need fire in these caves. They would always have light. But yeah, it is a very creepy image. Yes. A glowing thing, but the eyes are not. They're black, like, like more like dead things again. Right. Yeah. And he starts to shout for Thecla, but suddenly he realizes, Oh, yeah, this is stupid. It's a trap. <laughs> yeah. I like the way he puts it though. I gulped air to shout Thecla once more. Then I knew and closed my lips. And Drew Terminus asked. Yeah. Just such a nice moment of resignation. Yeah. So let's get this party started. (laughs) (laughs) One of them advances. Severian says he's, quote, larger or at least bolder than the rest. So I guess Severian, even with his perfect recall, isn't sure if he's bigger or just seems bigger. And this guy is carrying a short, 
hafted, that's a short-handled mace, a club with a ball at the end of it. And sometimes they have spikes. The handle of this mace is made from a thigh bone. I suppose that means a human thigh bone, uh, eight man or regular. He doesn't say. So Varian is thrown off by this because, you know, if thigh bones are being used for mace handles, what are they making their musical instruments from? <laughs> so he's uh, standing just out of range of Severian's sword, smacking the head of the mace into his other hand. He describes that hand as being long, which Severian has previously associated as a simian trait when he's talking to yeah. Rudison in the picture gallery. So eight men, dog-faced ape, a baboon, I guess, Rudison. In the eerie. Oops, look the other way. Manape is sloshing through the water to get this variant. He slashes at it with his sword. He cuts it through its breastbone, the sternum, and it digs right into his chest. It's as sharp and penetrating as a Jedi lightsaber. And remember, Severian's blade is not more than three or four feet long. So they're fighting very close quarters here. Right. And the mandate just drops dead in the water, is carried away by the current. I suppose Agia and the assassins know that there's a fight going on now when they see a body tumbling out. I imagine them all rushing up to check it out. Nope, not Severian yet. So Severian notices when the mandate entered the water that they don't really like it. Like our apes, they don't like to get in water. And it slowed him down so that he couldn't rush him. So Severian says... Turning to keep all my attackers in view, I backed into it and began slowly to move toward the point where it ran to the outside world. Now, you know, I've always imagined this water traveling down the middle of the room with space on either side, but I get for the idea that the water is actually running to one side of the chasm, and there's really only one bank that Severian and the man-apes can stand on. Mm -hmm. That's what it seems like from this description. Yeah. yeah. But still. In order to reach the opening, he's going to have to go by a long gauntlet of man-apes that will jump in the water and stop him and jump in behind him to attack. And even if there is a wall on the other side of the water, they're still surrounding him on at least three sides. And Severian guesses that there are several hundred. And the light of their bodies is sufficient to see the surrounding room. And it's like an excavated street with buildings that are made, like you said, of seamless stone. Yeah. I don't know what they're made of. They could be made, they could be our cities. Could be. The only other thing I was thinking when he talks about seamless stone is actually like old, um, like Pueblo dwellings, like especially the ones on the side mm -hmm. of caves where, you know, it's made of oh, seamless yeah. stone, which, I mean, I'm thinking this has to be some kind of, you know, modern structure, but I wonder if it's supposed to, like the, the man apes, all they could really do was like build up mud walls or something like that. And so that really is their city, maybe that a ruin. I don't, I don't know. Hmm. Or could be a futuristic city of yeah. our future, but is now an ancient artifact. Right. Yep. Anyway, all this takes longer to tell than to occur. From the time he steps in the water, he takes six steps, and then they all rush him. Severian swings his sword in big circles to fend them off in all directions. And it makes that a sound that swinging swords only make in Robert Howard novels or Conan <laughs> movies. It's louder than the bellowing and screaming. Scream of the Man Apes. Yeah, I gotta talk about Conan too because I know I've said a couple times that I always think of this as the Conan <laughs> moment. And once he starts swinging that sword around, it totally seems like okay, now we're gonna finally see Severian do the the sword thing because he 
right? He gets his really cool sword in the first book, but he never really gets to fight with it. And finally, we're getting that moment. And yeah, it seems at first very Conan-ish, like, a, you know, a single sword guy standing in the water in a cave with these you know, bestial creatures. Attacking yeah, very him. much. So, yeah, we mentioned Tolkien, but but it's also very much kind of a Conan moment yeah. of the old pulpish, you know, now we're going to have the full on sword and sorcery kind of of fantasy too. So we're taking off a lot of boxes in the genre thing here, but I think it's also really cool that he does that in the same moment when he's going to finally realize what the value of this claw of the, the claw is. And that it's not just a magic object. Like it's all this stuff that's setting up the fantasy thing, but then the magic object we're going to know too, is something that's not just magic, yeah, but actually tied to that bigger story that we right. know of the, Christ and the Messiah and all that kind of stuff coming back in. So pretty cool. Yeah. And yeah, I could definitely imagine this as a Franzetta painting very much. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. And also um, uh, Michael Andrisi in his uh, chapter guide for the book of the new Sun makes a very compelling case that this scene is inspired by Michael Crichton's eaters of the dead. So say, make what you will of that, (laughs) but Severian, takes down two at a time and then three more and then seven more. Soon the water's black with their blood. Severian gets hit on the shoulder, probably with a mace, and it knocks his sword out of his hand into the water. Suddenly they are all on top of him, pushing him under the water in darkness. One of them, I guess the one who hit him with the mace, is snapping at his arms with his long canine teeth. But their distaste for water makes the attacks less effective. And Severian sticks his fingers into the man-ape's wide nostrils to get a grip. Severian's been watching Three Stooges shorts. <laughs> and then he snaps his neck. And he says it was harder to do than it would have been with a normal human neck. I'm guessing that's the torture. Yeah, yeah. Finally coming in handy, yeah. And I'm imagining a, a yard full of apprentices learning to do this maneuver. <laughs> and I think, grab him bit by the nostrils. <laughs> Severians consider swimming underwater out of the tunnel. They don't seem to see him under the stream. And he does get a little ways out toward the opening that way. But he runs out of air and he has to come up. And Severian feels like this was the moment that by all rights, he should have died. His sword is gone. His arm is numb from being hit and bitten by the man-ape. They're all rushing him with so much enthusiasm that they sort of get in each other's way. You think creatures that have minimal work beyond protecting the autarch's horde would have done drills or something to prepare for moments like this, but no. (laughs) And the way they obstruct each other gives Severian a slight opportunity. He kicks one of them in the face and another grabs his foot by the boot. And then Severian sees it. The claw flashing flashing blue i suppose flashing inside his boot and severian doesn't know why he did this he supposes it's instinct or some inspiration i think it's because of his other self the first severian knows what's going on but whatever severian grabs at the claw and the claw bursts to life like a flare it fills the cavern with blue light and transforms the greenish yellow corpse light to the light of life. It's much brighter than all the light from the man-apes glowing bodies. 
important to note too that he does mention while he's under the water that he's like by all rights i should have died so severian specifically brings up that idea of death which means mm-hmm. then there's at least a kind of at least metaphor of rebirth that's happening here so not exactly a baptism yeah and it had he died it would have been totally appropriate in a hammet smell sense if he yeah. had died and sunk on beneath yeah. the yeah. waves but he doesn't now for first time readers this is the first time it has been demonstrated that the claw is more than just a beautiful gem that the way it seems to shine is not just some sort of special way that the gem is faceted. It's something more. And whatever it is, the man-apes seem to know more about it than Severian, right? Yeah. At this moment, they suddenly stop as, quote, as though at the stroke of a gong. And we're going to get an actual type of gong in a minute. And Severian lifts the claw over his head. Now, Greg, here's a suggestion I have for artists that are listening right now. Mm-hmm. Take the iconic <laughs> Star Wars poster from 1970 with, by Tom Jung, the one with Luke holding the lightsaber over his head, and then replace him with Severian holding the claw, his arm fully extended, <laughs> surround the scene with manaves, and I'm just spitballing now, but put Agi in Leah's place with an athame, and maybe replace Darth Vader with Baldander's head or <laughs> Father Aniri. Replace C3PO and R2D2 with, I don't know, Dr. Talos and Jonas. And in the place of the Death Star, maybe uh, a green moon or the Kamean in snake form. But anyway, Luke Skywalker in that poster, one arm fully extended and in a black cloak. And that's the way I always imagine this scene. <laughs> yeah, I got him as much as I like all the covers by Don Mates. The pose that he has Severian in seems a little bit more like a lecturer like talking yeah. to them almost like it, it's yeah. just the way it's framed it just doesn't seem to have as much action but it always seems like yeah he reaches down and just you know yeah he's holding it up all of a sudden in a dramatic right moment. okay now more hamlet's mill related analysis this moment is one of the signifiers of an event in a wolf story that takes place in the great rift portion of the sky it doesn't always occur but it occurs often enough the protagonist draws a hidden weapon to defeat the opponent in Baldander's house, Severian draws the sword in Dr. Talos's sword cane. In the wizard knight, Abel, in a cave, actually standing in a pool, finds and draws a sword from the water to defeat the dragon. In peace, when they're digging for treasure, they hit a box and Elizabeth draws a hidden gun. And well, Weir doesn't die, and let's just say I don't believe that Elizabeth left town, <laughs> as Weir claimed. In an evil guest in the cave, Cassie draws a hidden pistol and kills the chief, which has always made me suspect that there's some connection between the villain Reese and the chief. And I don't know what it is, but that's the wet, I think. In Blood's house, Silk draws his Azoth and kills Blood. And in the fifth head of Cerberus, in his father's office, number five draws his knife. And it can be more metaphorical, like uh, the Shadow Child's secret song that draws down the English ships to save Sandwalker from the Marshmen, or in the Tale of the Student of the Sun, it's a secret plan that he got from Noctua. This pattern just recurs over and over and over in wolf stories when the events are associated with this part of the sky. Severian doesn't know what he expected to happen, but what happened definitely wasn't that. (laughs) All the man-apes step back about a meter away, three feet. They stop shrieking. They stop attacking. 
They squat and bow with their faces to the floor in silence. There is no sound in the cavern but water flowing. Now, here's my question. How do the man-apes know so much about the claw? Clearly, they are believers, devoted believers in the New Sun religion. Did the Pelerines regularly stop by this cave to do devotions? As soon as these guys see it, they know it's the claw. And as far as they are concerned, the bearer of the claw gets a pass on everything. They aren't going to attack him. And it turns out they know the extent of its capabilities. So I would ask first thing, because, yeah, I've wondered that too. And it makes me wonder if this is one time when, like with the healing properties, there is actually some kind of quote unquote magic connected with the light. Like, is it because they recognize the symbol and are educated about what it's supposed to represent that they act this way? Or is Mm -hmm. there just something about the light that affects them on this really visceral level that makes them react that way? Um, And if they are so bestial, then it almost seems like it has to be something more direct i don't know like the the way they always talk about you know music soothes the savage mm-hmm. beast well something about this light soothes them and makes them want to to bow i don't know but um but yeah that's a it's a question because if it depends on how you take their actions right are they sort of involuntary or are they yeah reacting out of a sense of some weird piety and that's a that's a really cool question because then what it would mean that these creatures who've been living down here have some kind of worship routine or legends or something which Mm -hmm. makes them a lot more intelligent than severians even been talking about them because they actually do have a kind of culture of some form that they're living out down there yeah it's a it's a weird question very specific yeah yeah and i honestly i don't know the answer i'd always assumed more that it was that more that sort of magic or involuntary power that it had but i really like the idea that no maybe it actually is because they know what the claw is and what this light represents. Cause that's, yeah, that's way more complicated, which is cool. <laughs> well, it's going to come up in the next chapter that a man knows that the claw could heal him. Seems to. Yeah. Yep. And it, maybe it has to do with that thing that is underneath their feet that we're going to hear mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, there is a, a first, a variant solution to this, of <laughs> course, as there always is, that he, as a walker in the corridors of time, came to the man-apes, perhaps with the claw, and, it, you know, it has, after all, disappeared other times temporarily. And, you know, like Jesus, it was implied in the New Testament that he went to hell to preach to those languishing there. The first Severian went to this underground city of man-apes bearing the claw, working miracles, and so that's why they honor the claw to a degree that's not evidenced even in saltus i think now that's really interesting because then it's not so much that they know the symbol of it; it's just that they've seen it before (laughs) and you know and they have living like real memory of it right (laughs) that's pretty cool too that's a cool suggestion yeah i like that there's there's actually a bunch of different possibilities i mean you mentioned first severian but there's actually other poss i'm even trying to think other people could be involved yeah yeah, the like, like how the, could the claw yeah. have gotten there before? Could it have been like, I'm even trying now to think, is there something in earth where Severian does something with somebody who ends up going underground for a while? I can't think of anything, but like, like yeah, is there a proto story of an origin story for the apes in earth? I don't know. Uh, I got to think about that. I don't remember one. I probably not, but right. it'd be cool to find something. <laughs> So Severian starts to back out of the cave, but now the man-apes look up and their faces look up at him. And in the light of the claw, 
Their faces that were so frightening and degraded before are now clearly the faces of people, of human beings. He can now imagine the eons that these people have spent underground to have changed so much. And Severian gets a sense of what the stakes are in the choice to let things continue as they are with the dying sun. We, so the mages say, were apes once. Happy apes in forests swallowed by deserts so long ago they have no names. Old men return to childish ways when at last the years becloud their minds. May it not be that mankind will return as an old man does to the decayed image of what once was, if at last the old sun dies and we're left scuffling over bones in the dark? I saw our future, one future at least, and I felt more sorrow for those who had triumphed in the dark battles than for those who had poured out their blood in that endless night. So Severian's saying that the living will be the dead in the future without right, the new right. sun. And it's also that moment where, like I said, things are clicking and he realizes all of a sudden now that symbol of the power and he sees how it makes these people act. And it's also kind of the moment when Severian gets religion <laughs> for the yeah. first time. I mean, like it's, I mean, really that's, he, he does, he kind of like finally ties this immediate experience he's having to the fate of humanity overall and what the symbol could be a bigger part of. Yeah. Yeah. And this scene that he has is this sudden revelation of what is at stake is possibly part of something that colors his meeting with Vodalus for the first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. So Severian continues to back out, but the man-apes just watch him. Uh-oh, where's Terminus S? He walks forward looking for it, and the man-apes start to look hopeful. Oh, he's going to stay with us and be our priest of the claw. And Sverian says, How terrible it seems now when I set the words on paper. Yet it would not, I think, have been terrible in fact. Bestial though they appeared, I could see adoration on every brute face, so that I thought, as I think now, that if they are worse in many ways than we are, these people of the hidden cities beneath earth are better in others, blessed with an ugly innocence. While he's looking, we finally get confirmation, which we must have assumed was the case, that there are stalactites and stalagmites here. Severian calls them each tooth of stone that hung from the ceiling of that cavernous space. At last, Severian just asks, my sword, where is my sword? Did one of you take her? (laughs) He didn't really expect them to understand, but they actually did. And they make signs to indicate that you know, he doesn't need his sword. They're not going to fight him. And suddenly the man-apes go silent because there's a new sound. Severian says that it's, quote, as if an ogre were to eat the very legs of the world. It was like the grinding of that ogre's teeth. The ground underneath his feet trembles and the water of the stream goes silty in the middle. And at this point, we get a hint of the eschatology, the end times of the new sun religion, a hint of their book of revelation. It's said that on the final day, the final day is capitalized, all the cities of earth will stride forth to meet the dawn of the new sun. And below the ground comes a sound like, quote, a step that might have been the walking of a tower on that final day. 
We already mentioned the mines of Moria. And this thing has been often compared, like you said, to the Balrog in the Fellowship of the Ring. And then that sound, that step, happens again a second time. The man-apes are out of there. They are hanging around. Severian writes that they flee for the back of the cavern room in silence as swift as, quote, so many flitting bats. And as they flee, the light of the claw begins to dim so that he has neither its light nor the corpse light of their bodies. And then the sound, the step, the clang comes again a third time and the claw goes out entirely. But just before it does, Severian captures sight of Terminus Est at the deepest part of the water. So he stuffs the claw back in his boot, picks up the sword, and hey, his arm's healed. The arm that was that the man-ape bit or slashed or hit with his saber canines, it's completely healed. And then bang, the step sound hits again a fourth time. And Severian takes a hint from the man-apes and heads in the opposite direction in total darkness to the front of the cave. You want to read that? What creature it was we had called from the roots of this continent, I think I now know. But I did not, but I did not know then, and I didn't know whether it was the roaring of the man-apes or the light of the claw or some other cause that had waked it. I only knew that there was something far beneath us before which the man-apes, with all the terror of their appearance and their numbers, scattered like sparks before a wind. Yeah, I'm going to want to talk about this in the episode of a couple chapters. I realize this is a spoiler podcast, but I just think it'll make more sense and be more useful to talk about it with the other things in that chapter. Uh, everyone's <laughs> going to be mad. They yeah. Know what it is. Oh, it's a hit. It's foreshadowing. <laughs> the question of whether the thing underground was summoned by the claw turning on or Severian's presence or if the claw was turned on by the thing underground, all these things are possible. You people have about a month to come up with a curiositous earth that's about it. <laughs> and there is some potential that the claw going out is associated with that underground thing, that it went out because it was summoned or it came on to summon it. I don't know. Do you have a theory about why the claw suddenly decided to go out? I have ideas, but they it really depends on whether you think that the claw went out because the man-apes went away mm -hmm. and that the claw was really shining for them, um, which is probably what I think in the end that it's, it, you know, we talk about, or we have talked about how it seems sometimes like the claw decides for itself when it wants to do something. Um, when we say it decides for itself, that could mean all kinds of things that could mean because it's Severian's power, that it's really Severian's connection to the, the star or Yassad or whatever that is deciding when things, something is appropriate, or you could say it's first Severian somehow having some control over when the claw works or not. That's another possibility or other forces altogether, just the Yasadis directly who for some reason have control of it. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of questions, but it seems like you could decide, okay, do you think it turns off the light turns off because the man apes flee? Do you think it turns off because that other thing down in the, the deep basement that it turned on. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know that there's one clear example, the way he describes it though. And something about that connection to the different lights always makes me feel like there's a stronger connection to the man apes that it was doing 
something for them that it was showing, I mean, maybe to protect Severian, but, but also that it was there because of their, I don't know that, that sort of simplicity and that innocence that Severian talks about seeing in their faces, that maybe something about the claw was, was pitying them somehow and wanted and was showing some light bringing out some better side of them or something like that. And that's why they, they fled. I like that idea better rather than just the idea that there's some big evil thing in mm-hmm. the bottom that, you know, mechanically turns off the light or something like <laughs> that. So, but I don't, I don't know. I really don't know just from this passage. I don't know. Now we're going to talk about this. Yeah. Again, later when Jonas and Severian get to talk about a whole lot of things. Right. Um, so there's, there's more input to come, but um, I, I, I lean more towards the idea that it was doing a performance for the man apes Mm. and not so much for Severian. Well, of course it could be as simple as it went out because Severian's arm had been healed, that it was called to life when Severian's arm was slashed and it healed it. And that was done too. Yeah. Ultimately, I think your interpretation of the reason why the claw works somewhat depends on whether you see this as a fantasy story or science fiction story. And I admit that mm-hmm. I, I lean yeah. more to this being a science fiction story and I want rational reasons for things to happen. The idea that this mm-hmm. has Severian's blood on it and therefore it does, it acts of its own will or does all these things. I, I admit to being less satisfied mm-hmm. about that, yeah. but that's because I think of this as primarily a science fiction story. And that fits really well with all the other talk that we've had about symbols and about the different causes about Mm -hmm. how things that seem magical or whatnot also have quote unquote scientific or material explanations. And there's so much in this book where Wolf seems like he's really at pains to point out that both of those things can be true at the same time. Then yeah, when magical things happen like this, you just like we had the whole discussion just a little bit ago about the young kid who, when he figured out that hot air rises and can make a balloon, he didn't care about the miracles anymore. Yeah. He's like, oh, that explains it. So, right. well, now we're seeing a miracle. So is it Wolf saying now, what's the equivalent of the hot air right. <laughs> in this yeah, miracle? Right? Exactly. What's the, you know, what, what is that? Um, and we don't know right now at this point. Um, but, and it's still, I'm still figuring it out. Yeah. So I'm not yep. exactly. Honestly, sure. me too. Honestly. Uh, one more thing. One last thing about, the cosmic mythological reading of this chapter, the final day, Mm -hmm. the final day of the coming of the new sun on that day, Severian has been told, quote, all the cities of earth will stride forth to meet the dawn of the new sun. Now, in one sense, this is sort of a prophecy that will happen when the new sun comes. Uh, Perhaps the earth's rotation is affected. We could work out an explanation for how this is applicable. It would be vague and not entirely satisfying, but it can be done. But when this prophecy is applied to cosmic mythological meaning of a new sun, the meaning from the Popol Vuh, it's perfect. This is the procession of the equinox. Slowly, over 26,000-year period, the stars rotate above our heads from west to east, rather than from east to west. Get it? They are approaching the rising of the new sun, the dawn of the new sun. Ancient cultures, like I said, would mark the advent of certain days by the rising of particular stars. And eventually those stars would not rise on schedule. They will have sunk, in a sense, 
below the eastern horizon. And then new stars, new gods will have to be chosen because the stars were gods and the sphere of heaven was their domain. And when the stars fail to rise on a time in a very technical sense, they have descended below the horizon into the underworld. And that is the story of gods dying or going into the underworld, like the Titans, like the Fomorians, or like uh, Barbarossa, or the descending below the sea, which was believed to encircle all the land of the world. A new sun is when the sun on the equinox or solstice was in a new constellation because of the procession of the equinox. So the cities of earth, the stars, of the night sky, upon the coming of a new sun, literally in a technical sense, shift eastward toward the dawn. So cool, Mr. Wolf. That's also way better than I had, which was that maybe Wolf had read Howl's Moving Castle (laughs) and thought of that. I don't know. So I think we really are probably going to leave it there on the creature too. So people are like, they're not really going to go away and not really talk about the creature for this. this But I think for this one we are, because I think it's going to make a lot more sense and give us a lot more information when Jonas, uh, when he and Jonas talk, there's just, there's more there. I mean, here, a couple things to kind of point out. I think that it's, I think it would be easy to assume that maybe these creatures were guarding whatever was down there. Right. Like, mm-hmm. because Severian talks about having control of them later on, but they seem terrified of this thing. Right? right. And it seems like if they were guarding it, then they wouldn't be so terrified. So that's what, yeah, we can, we can wonder like, is it a Megatherian? Is it just a big war creature that, that Severian knows about? And he doesn't talk about because it, it's a, you know, it's a state secret that he's not allowed to put in his journal or something like that. Or do they, do they serve whatever that yeah, is? Yeah. Are they running to it? And yeah. all he is doing is calling yeah. them back. Yeah. So, and I don't know. I mean, the Balrog scares the orcs away too, right? Mm-hmm. They're both evil, but right. the orcs are terrified of the Balrog. So yeah, it could be something like that. It certainly fits. Yeah. Um, but, but there's going to be more. There will be more when we get to James. Right. <laughs> Well, we certainly hope you have ideas about what that thing (laughs) under the ground is and that you'll have comments and thoughts and corrections about this episode and complaints and that you're going to bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, or email. And you can find out how to do all those things in the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolfering friends. And until you hear from us again, may the Moira favor you. Take care, everybody. I think I'm so educated and I'm so civilized Cause I'm a strict vegetarian But with the overpopulation and inflation and starvation And the crazy politicians I don't feel safe in this world no more I don't wanna die in a nuclear war I wanna sail away to a distant shore And make like an ape man I'm an ape man, I'm an ape Yep. We we walked right over right past we walked yeah. scroll it. Don't mind me.
Luke Skywalker and that poet. Po- oh, his essay about Tolkien. I forgot, but I'd have to look it up now. Hang on, I got it right over here behind it's, me. It's something. Hang on, hang on. Let me get. Or... Yep, yep, yeah. I just don't have anything to say. Yeah, so you know, I'm good. I'm good. Are you there? Oh, okay, 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 good. Okay, okay. <laughs>